Morning. Try that again. Good morning. <laughs> it's good to be with you once more. Let's pray together. Father, as we come before you, we pray that we would hear your prayer and that it would encourage us and challenge us and stir us up. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. In his uh, final days, John Knox, the Scottish reformer of the 16th century, he daily asked to hear the prayer of Jesus in John 17. For him, Jesus' prayer was a deep source of comfort and strength. And I hope and I pray that it is also for you as well as for me. Last week we, we listened as Jesus prays in verses one through five, knowing he prays, knowing that he will soon suffer the horrors of, of crucifixion. And he asks that the fathers in his glory be visibly displayed as he, Jesus, the sinless one, bears the sins of his people, displaying for all to see the triune God's justice, mercy, grace, and love by purchasing at the price of his shed blood the gift of eternal life for his people. Now next week, We'll hear Jesus pray in verses 20 through 26. We'll hear him pray for you, for me, for all who believe, for all who have been brought to faith because of the witness borne by Jesus' immediate followers as, as that is recorded for us in Holy Scripture. So now this morning, I want you to listen as Jesus prays in verses 6 through 19, John 17, verses 6 through 19. Listen as he prays for his 11 disciples who are still with him, Judas having departed to set into motion his act of betrayal. Listen as Jesus prays in verses 6 through 8. Father. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave to me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and I've kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Jesus tells his Father, I've manifested, I've shown your name to my disciples. Now, that's a little bit of a strange statement for us, but often in Scripture, to know someone's name is to know a great deal about them. You remember, for, for example, in Isaiah chapter 7, you're told that the name of the son born to the virgin will be 
will be what? What will his name be in Isaiah 7? Emmanuel. His name will be Emmanuel. That name tells us that this one born to the virgin will be God with us. That's what Emmanuel means. Likewise, in Isaiah chapter 9, you learn by knowing his name that Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. Jesus has made known to his disciples who the Father is by showing them himself, as he told them earlier that evening. If you've seen me, you've seen who? You've seen the Father. A few weeks earlier, Jesus tells the religious leaders of Judea, I am the great I am. Well, <laughs> he's telling them, I am Yahweh. Come in human flesh. I am God. And they understood what he was claiming, but they didn't believe it. In fact, their response was attempt to stone him because they believed him to be guilty of blasphemy because they understood full well what he had said to them by telling them, my name is Yahweh. I am the great I am. They didn't believe it. Jesus' disciples came to understand and believe what Jesus told them. Jesus tells the Father, they have kept his word. What a marvelous statement. They, these 11, they have kept his word. They have held true to the Father's word spoken to them by Jesus. They know and they believe that Jesus came from the Father, that he's God, and that those who believe in him become children of God. But that's not all Jesus knows. Even as he prays for them, even as he says to the Father, they have kept your word, Jesus knows they still have much to learn. I mean, in fact, that very evening, he promises to send the Holy Spirit to guide them into a deeper understanding of true truth. And furthermore, Jesus is painfully aware. He fully knows. He painfully knows that over the next few hours, when push comes to shove, they will desert him. That ought to sound familiar. For just like them, you know and you believe that he is your savior and king, and yet you know how much you still don't know. You know how much you still have to learn. You are, you are also, with me, painfully aware of how often 
by your words and deeds or thoughts. When push comes to shove, you desert him. You turn your back on him. And you do full well. You do knowing full well. You do what you know he wouldn't have you to do. But by God's grace, what do you also know? You also know that God is gracious, merciful, loving, patient, and forgiving. Think about that moment in time when the risen Christ, when Jesus, physically risen from the dead, first stands among these who just three days earlier deserted him. Think about that moment. What are the first words that Jesus speaks to them? Jesus says to them, to these who have turned their back on him and fled from him, he says to Peter, who publicly denied him three times, Jesus says to them, Shalom. Peace be with you. I can think of a lot of things I might have said to them at that moment. But the first thing Jesus says to them, Peace be with you. My brothers and sisters, these are the words you hear. These are the words you hear him say when you truly confess and genuinely repent of your sins. Because what did Jesus promise? He promised that nothing, nothing in heaven, on earth, or in hell, nothing can ever separate you from his love. Now here in John 17, because of his unwavering love for them, Jesus intercedes for them. He's praying for them. And remember, that even now, he does so for you. He knows how much you still need to learn. He's well aware of your sinful weaknesses. None of that is hidden from him. But you're told in Hebrews 7 and verse 25, Jesus always, think of these words, Jesus always lives to intercede for you. Jesus is praying for you. That's almost beyond my ability to grasp. Jesus is praying for you. Now look at verses 9 through 11. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, 
but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Now, I, I, I don't know what your response is, but it's always a little stunning to me to hear Jesus say, he's not praying for the world. I'm not praying for the world, I'm praying for these, these 11. I'm not praying for the world. I mean, didn't Jesus tell Nicodemus in John 3:16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life? Well, of course he did. Jesus tells Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews, he's telling Nicodemus God doesn't simply love the Jews. He's telling Nicodemus that God's saving love extends to all throughout the world, be they Jew or Gentile. God's love extends to all who by grace through faith embrace Jesus as Savior and King. Okay. But here in John 17, verse 9, Jesus is using the word world differently. Here in John 7, verse 19, Jesus uses the world, the world for which he is not praying, he's using the word world to speak of those who live in active rebellion against the one by whom and for whom they were made. And furthermore, as you will see, here in John 17, God's love for the world, God's love for all manner of people, will be made evident. Jesus will send his disciples into the world to preach the gospel and make disciples of all manner of people, including you and me. Look at verse 10. Jesus says to the Father concerning his followers, all mine are yours, all yours are mine. Scripture teaches that before the foundation of the world, these 11, that before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, you and me belonged to the Father. And now the 11, you and me, we belong to Jesus. Which is why Jesus tells the Father concerning the 11 and concerning you and me, that in them, he will be glorified. Jesus, I'm going to return to the Father. They will remain in the world. But by God's grace, they will visibly display Jesus' glory by being faithfully obedient to him. And therefore, Jesus prays in the latter half of verse 11 and verse 13, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they, those listening to me as I pray, that they may have my joy fulfilled 
in themselves. Jesus speaks of God in two ways. He addresses God as Holy Father. You see that. Holy speaks of God's transcendence, which is a word that means, that, that describes the fact that God is not of this world. He's not subject to the limitations of this world. But note also that Jesus addresses him as Father, a term that speaks of a familial, intimate relationship. Now, you may have many friends. You may have perhaps a few close friends. But you have only one earthly father. And for most of you, that relationship supersedes all other earthly relationships. But as a believer, you also have a heavenly family. You are an adopted child of the king. And you enjoy a familial, intimate relationship with your father in heaven, as well as with one another. There is a tie that binds us together of which the world knows nothing. Jesus prays for them Jesus prays for the Father to keep them in his name. That is to keep them faithful to him and to protect them by the power of his name. During the past three years, Jesus, as their good shepherd, loved, kept, and guarded his sheep. Only Judas was lost, as we're told he would be in Psalm 41.10. But now Jesus, knowing he will soon no longer be with them physically. Jesus deliberately chooses to pray aloud so that they, as well as you and me, so that they might hear and know that the Father will keep and guard them. And being kept and guarded by the Father, they will experience that Christ-like joy that comes from doing the Father's will. I read somewhere recently that the most popular course at Yale University is entitled The Pursuit of Happiness. <laughs> I would suggest the following acronym as an outline for their course. Of course, they won't pay any attention to me. But I would suggest the following acronym. The word joy, J, Jesus first, O, other second, and Y, you third. Now listen as Jesus prays in verses 14 through 16. I have given, your, you, I have given them your word, and, and the world has, has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, my friends, Jesus knows. Jesus knows full well that life in this world isn't easy. The world hated and killed him. 
the world hated and killed him. Likewise, the world will hate his followers. 10 out of 11 will die as martyrs. John will be exiled to the Isle of Patmos. The world will hate and persecute them. Why? Because they received, believed, and proclaimed the word Jesus spoke to them. The world's hatred is because Jesus' true, eternal, unchanging truth doesn't fit with this world's ideas. You see and you hear all around you the world's increasing hatred of Jesus' word. The world finds the teaching, uh, finds the teaching of Jesus and his his word to be narrow-minded and bigoted. And you know, I hope you know, I hope you realize, if if you pay attention to what is going on in our nation, to say nothing of our world, you know that if you live and hold fast to his word, the world calls you bigoted and intolerant. And there's nothing worse in the world's eyes than being intolerant of the ideas of others, even if those ideas are lies that contradict Jesus' word. Since this is the world in which Jesus lives his disciples, it leaves his disciples, he asks the Father to protect them, to protect them from the evil one and his cohorts, to keep them from being overwhelmed by evil threats and the enticement of sin's lies. Jesus knows. That's why he prays this way. He knows that you are or that you will be under attack, but he places you here not to fight with the weapons of this world, but instead to stand firm in his strength, to overcome by his might the threats and enticements of sin. He places you here to blaze with his glory so that by his enabling grace, he might work in and through you to draw others to the light of the gospel and the glory of his kingly rule. It's sobering, but it's true. I mean, life in this world can be a deadly business. You understand, don't you, that during the last 100 years, more believers have been martyred, more believers have shed their blood for the sake of Christ than in all the previous centuries combined. We're so blessed to live in this land, but throughout this world, a bloody battle rages. What's June the 6th, 1944? What's June the 6th, 1944? Come on, are you awake? It's D-Day. Thank you. I hope you never forget that. 
D-Day assured the Allies victory during the war in Europe. But for the next 11 months, between D-Day and victory in Europe Day, many battles had to be fought. Well, likewise, at the cross, the victory was won. One day Jesus will come again. But until he comes, there are battles to be fought. Some of those battles may prove bloody. And therefore, knowing all this to be true, Jesus prays in verses 17 through 19, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus asks the Father to sanctify his followers. To sanctify, that is to set them apart. That is what it means to be sanctified. It's a word from which our word holy comes. To be sanctified is to be set apart by God for a holy purpose. Jesus asks the Father to sanctify his followers, to set them apart to the holy purpose of fulfilling their God-given task of remaining faithful to his word and of carrying the good news of the gospel into all the world. As the Father sent him, he now sends them into their neighborhoods, into their cities, into their countries, into the world. And therefore, Jesus prays that he concentrates, he consecrates, he consecrates himself He sanctifies himself. He sets himself apart to doing the Father's will by laying down his life for his people. He dies and then he rises again so that you, by his enabling grace, by his power, might die to sin and rise up to keep the Father's word, to do the Father's bidding, to carry his unchanging truth into all the world. Are you a keeper of his word? Do you know that he is your God, your creator, savior, and king? The one who freely chose to humble himself, to become a man, to pay the penalty for your sins. We will soon come to this table And we will eat this meal together, the Lord's Supper. We will do it in remembrance of Him. In remembrance of Him who died and rose again. That we might be His people. That He might be our God. That we might do His bidding. That our lives might blaze with His glory. For the sake of his holy name and for the temporal and eternal welfare of others. Believer, you may like John Knox as you read and reread our Lord's Prayer. 
I pray that you will remember that even now, he's praying for you. Jesus is praying for you. Jesus lives to ever make intercession for you. He's praying for you to be sanctified, for you to be set apart, for you to be protected by the Father, for you to blaze with his glory, that in and through you he might draw to himself others, that they too might know the joy that comes, the joy that I hope you could bear witness to, the joy that comes from living the life he created you to live, which is the best of all possible lives. Let's pray. Father, prepare us now to celebrate this holy meal. Father, it is just stunning to hear Jesus pray for the eleven, to know that even as he intercedes for them, so he intercedes for us. He intercedes for us that we might be sanctified, that we might be set apart to the doing of his holy purposes. So, Father, may we blaze with your glory. May you use us and use us up until that day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord.